and welcome to the seventh episode of Cryptids Decrypted. Just in time for Halloween, today we're talking about the Jersey Devil with Dr. Brian Regal. He's literally the guy who wrote the book on the Jersey Devil, so it's a really exciting conversation. But before we get to that, just a few quick notes as usual. First, you know, I wanted to put in a plug. Uh, You like cryptids, you listen to this podcast, so probably. Uh, You may know, I'm an author. I've written a book about a monster hunter getting drunk and going after a yeti. It's got, you know, 4.8 stars on Amazon and Goodreads. So, you know, basically critically acclaimed. Uh, If you want to check that out, it's called Whiteout, a Nick Ventner adventure. You can find it on Amazon or any other place books are sold by just searching Whiteout. And Ashton or Ashton McCauley, you can find it any of those places, or you can go to my website, macashton.com, and there's info there as well, and some sample chapters. Second, I want to take a chance to announce uh, an audio drama that's going to be coming out from uh, myself, aberrant literature, and a very talented voice actor named James Croft. It's called The Man of the Mountain. It's about a guy who really just wants to maintain the Bigfoot legend at all costs, even if that means murdering people. And of course, the tabloid reporters that hunt him. It's a it's a serious story with some comedic elements, and it's really fun. So that's going to be coming out as an audio drama very soon, and it's also going to be dropping in paperback. If you want to check out the trailers, you can go to anchor.fm slash mountain. Again, that's anchor.fm slash mountain. Uh, there's hyphens in between all of those words, so you'll need that to find it. Uh, in any case, I'll put a link in the episode description here. You can already follow us on iTunes and whatever your favorite platform is for that podcast. And lastly, before we get started, again, the best way to help this podcast is by rating it wherever you're listening to it and sharing it with your friends. So if you are enjoying it, please share it around your community. Again, you guys have been awesome uh, with all your support and yeah, I really appreciate it. So let's get to the episode. Enjoy my talk with Dr. Brian Regal. Today we've got Professor Brian Regal on. Can you tell us a little bit about what you study? I know that you've written some very interesting books. I'd love to just give a little background to our listeners. Sure. Uh, I'm an associate professor for the history of science, technology, and medicine at uh, Kane University in New Jersey. And I write a lot on evolution and the history of evolution and its relationship to politics, religion, culture and society. And the last few years, I've been looking uh, almost exclusively at monster hunting and the people who hunt monsters and uh, cryptozoology. Uh, my most recent book is with uh, my co-author, Frank Esposito, uh, The Secret History of the Jersey Devil. And the one before that is Searching for Sasquatch, Eggheads, Crackpots, and Cryptozoology. <laughs> That's a wonderful title. I love it. So I, I, I'm curious. So I, I did read, you know, I read a little bit about your background in studying evolution. What made you want to make the switch to looking into cryptozoology or fringe science in general? Well, my doctoral dissertation was on the life of uh, this guy, Henry Fairfield Osborne, who was a late 19th, early 20th century paleontologist. He ran the American Museum of Natural History for decades. Uh, he's the guy who sponsored Roy Chapman Andrews to go to Central Asia. He came up with the name Tyrannosaurus. He came up with the name Velociraptor. Uh, so he was a, a, an important guy. And he, he fascinated me because he was kind of a bridge between science and religion. Uh, you know, today we have this sort of 
skewed view of the of the relationship between science and religion that somehow if you believe in religion uh, you love God and you love Jesus and and you hate evolution and if you believe in evolution somehow you don't believe in God and Osborne broke all those boundaries uh, he was a, a guy who by today's standards would be considered uh, a, a fundamentalist Christian yet he was a popular promoter of the importance of science education in the public schools. Uh, he fought for the uh, teaching of evolution in the public schools. Uh, he was involved in the in the, the monkey trial. Uh, and so in, in doing that project, which became my first book, I started coming across all these interesting, oh, sort of telltale signs about monsters and, and people who are interested in monsters and trying to prove whether monsters were real or not. And that sort of got me going down that avenue. And I was already interested in the more fringe aspects of science history. And I thought uh, maybe I should take a look at some of this. And I discovered that, I mean, I had heard about the life of Grover Krantz. And I saw that this was around 2005 or so. And um, I saw that he had just died. So I was disappointed about that. But then I discovered that his estate had left all of his papers to the Smithsonian. So I went down there and sure enough, this huge collection of material that no one had looked at yet. I don't think anybody's ever looked at it after I looked at it. Uh, I might be the only person who's ever looked at this huge collection uh, of primary source documents on the founding of cryptozoology. And it just, you know, one thing led to another, and, and I just did what historians do. We follow the primary sources. We dig through archives. And uh, all this material about these other people started turning up, other important cryptozoologists. And the next thing I knew, I had a book. Yeah. And I mean, like, you know, Kansas, he's just a really interesting guy in general, too. Like, I remember when I was researching him initially, he, he's the one that uh, has his skeleton on display with the skeleton of his dog, right? Yes, with his dog, Clyde. Yeah, it's just such a such an interesting request. It's like, yeah, you can display me, but you have to display my dog as well. That's just very interesting. Dude, he was very attached to that dog. <laughs> no kidding. So that's, that's interesting that that's, that's sort of how you got to this uh, realm of cryptozoology. And I'm curious, were you met with a lot of backlash from that community when you were doing your research, or were you generally kind of outside the community when you were starting to look into it? Well, I'm not a cryptozoologist. Right. Uh, I'm, not a, I'm not a debunker, even though the Wall Street Journal called me a debunker once. I'm not a debunker, uh, and I'm not really a skeptic in that way that people call themselves skeptics now. I'm a historian. Uh, I follow the archival evidence uh, and try to come up with some sort of explanation for the behavior of historical personages. And when I started the, the Krantz book, uh, I began to approach some of these important people, key players who were still alive. And at first I was welcomed in. Uh, they basically were saying, oh, you know, it's so great to finally have a real historian study, you know, going to tell our story. And I was very careful to say, look, you know, I'm I'm not pro or anti cryptozoology. I'm going to look at this and the chips are going to fall where they fall. Uh, but they, you know, a number of people were very good in letting me look at some of the material they had. And it all st it all started to go sour right before the book came out. 
because uh, in the in the world of publishing, you have to have permission for everything. Uh, and because I was talking to people who were alive and who had lent me material or showed me material that was not generally available in the public domain, you have to send them a, a, a basically a, a release form that says, yes, I'm, I allow you to use, you know, we had this conversation on the phone, I'm allowing you to do this, or I show you this letter that I have and I'm going to let you use it. And when the publisher sent out these notifications, it's a fairly standard, straightforward thing uh, that happens with all books uh, where, where the authors are talking to still living people. But it had to include the title of the book. Oh, that's when, that's when it got a little sticky and a number of people, some I don't want to use any names, but uh, uh, several people very high up on the on the um, cryptozoological ladder uh, got really upset and they said, oh, you're you're just trying to make us look bad. This, this is a terrible title. Uh, you know, you're you're a horrible human being. How could you do this? You betrayed us. And I said, look, dude, <laughs> I didn't make those words up. I got those words from people within cryptozoology. The, the term crackpots and eggheads comes from Ivan Sanderson and Rennie DeHinden. Uh, so if you're mad about that, go yell at their graves. Uh, and so luckily, the, the people who pulled their, their permissions for this at the last second, uh, I was able to get around the stuff that they let me use. I didn't have to use it. It didn't really, uh, it would have been sort of nice flavoring for the, for the narrative, but it didn't really affect the story I was telling one way or the other. Uh, and I still get people who write to me and say, you know, I, 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 I read this and it's a fantastic book. Uh, and I, and I still get people who just see the title and say, you know, you're a horrible person and you hate cryptozoologists and yada, yada, yada. I'm, I'm a public historian. I, I do a lot of writing about, uh, topical issues. And so I get tons of hate mail uh, on all sorts of different things. And so it, it's not really, it doesn't really bother me. Uh, I'm kind of used to it. Yeah. And I mean, I think that, you know, that kind of makes sense where, I, you know, we, we've had a little bit of that here on the podcast as well, because, you know, we're fairly new, but we've been talking to cryptozoologists, but then the next episode, we're breaking down the myth uh, from start to finish and kind of seeing where it comes from. And people don't tend to like that aspect as much. But so, you know, speaking of myths and The Jersey Devil, uh, your second book, I think has one of the most uh, interesting. It's actually my eighth. Oh, so, sorry. Your uh, second book on cryptozoology is what I meant. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Fair enough. Second book yeah. on cryptozoology, eighth <laughs> overall. Yeah. My mistake. My mistake. But uh, so I, I'm curious, what drew you to the Jersey Devil specifically? Because it is a... It's a wild myth with a very interesting origin. Yeah, well, um, like I said, my my co-author, Frank Esposito, and I, we're, we're, we're both at Kane. Uh, Dr. Esposito is uh, one of our most senior uh, faculty members, and he is also a scholar of um, Native American history and New Jersey history. And one day a few years back, we were having a conversation and – the Jersey devil came up and we both sort of the light bulbs went off over both of our heads and said, you know, we should do something on the Jersey devil because there's so much stuff out there, but it's, it, it's all such garbage. Uh, it's uninformed. It's, you know, the, the same uh, unsubstantiated stories told over and over and over again, including by people who should have known better. 
And so we said, you know, let's let's tackle this. And we will do it the way we always do our work. We'll do it the way historians do it. We went out and we started tracking down the primary source material. Uh, and we saw that there was a, a, a far more interesting and, and we think historically important story uh, to the Jersey Devil than just some silly, you know, emaciated horse that kind of flutters around the Pine Barrens. So, so how did that myth get started? There's a, there's, I know that there's a, couple of, there's a couple of theories out there for where it came from. What we argue is that this whole thing starts with a guy named Daniel Leeds, who is an early uh, colonist in North America when it's still British North America. It's not the United States yet. Uh, and he's a Quaker. And he, he and his family, his father and his two brothers, come to what is then West Jersey. There's no New Jersey yet. And they set up uh, in in a, a, a small but a growing Quaker community in the town of Burlington, and they begin to go about their you know their ways. Uh, and Daniel Leeds is a kind of voracious autodidact. He, he he reads and reads and reads on his own because he he grows up in in England. And because he uh, is a Quaker at the time, there were laws that said Quakers couldn't go to university. And so he is forced, he has no choice, uh, like all other Quakers, but to educate himself. And so he starts reading in science and theology and politics and history. Uh, he's one of these guys who just devours knowledge. And the more he devours, the more he wants to learn. And he gets the idea that uh, he could bring in a small way, he could bring the ideas of the Enlightenment and the scientific scientific revolution to the new world. Uh, and that's what he sets about doing. And in trying to do that, he runs into mainstream Quakerism, who thinks what he's doing is a little too occult related and shady. Uh, and it kind of blows up in everybody's faces. Uh, and, and that's what sort of starts this kind of very long line of dominoes, uh, which wind up uh, in the early 20th century and the creation of the Jersey Devil story. Yeah. And what, what do you think makes a myth like that so prone to propagation? Because it, like, like you say, you know, it generally doesn't go well for people when they're the first person to try and bring uh, science to a non-scientific community or, or bring something new. Uh, in the old days, that definitely didn't go well. It still doesn't go well today necessarily. But how, how do you think it spread uh, so widely and so quickly? Well, I think what happens is the various because this is not one story. Uh, it's not it, it, it's not the story of one devil. It's the story of two devils. There's the Leeds devil, and only later do you get the Jersey devil. Uh, but it's a story about hatred and bigotry. And uh, shady land deals gone bad and political maneuverings. And in each incarnation of the story, it sort of uh, it, it appeals to the generation that that part of the story uh, comes out. Uh, initially, it's about uh, uh, people who are somehow involved in the occult. Then it becomes a story about people who are siding with the empire rather than the colonists. Uh, and then it then it's uh, it slowly evolves into 
creepy stories about weird things in the middle of the forest. And then by the 20th century, uh, it becomes a monster. Uh, and, and so it, it, it has these different kind of chapters to it that appeals to the generation where that part of the story comes out. Now, so the, the Leeds, the Leeds devil is that, so you said it's different from the Jersey devil. So is the Jersey devil, then the the theory of like the 13th son that they gave birth to that ended up having bat wings and all that. And then is the Leeds devil, the father? Well, the Leeds devil, uh, what I always say is the Leeds devil is a political animal. Uh, It's not really a beast at all at first. Uh, It kind of represents this notion uh, of loyal Americans versus those who are going to side with the empire. Uh, And it's not really a monster in that sense of a beast. It's more of a political monster. Um, And it only really becomes, I mean, the term Jersey Devil doesn't appear anywhere until the 20th century. Uh, and you know, there's, there's a number of things which begin to happen between roughly say 1905 and 1909, uh, where what had been basically, uh, a story about a political, um, political shenanigans, uh, which by then, by the end of the 19th century has essentially gone extinct, uh, if we can use the animal analogy, uh, and then gets resurrected, uh, for more propaganda, to basically get people to go to a dime museum and the guys who run the dime museum take this story and and kind of recast it as a modern monster story and and only then does the term jersey devil appear right and is that so is that when we start getting the sightings like there's the the i forget who exactly it was but somebody who fired a cannonball on a creature that they saw and they said it had no effect and then you know sightings of unknown animals with red eyes out in the forest and stuff like that does that come sort of after that yeah that doesn't yeah that doesn't come until the 20th century the the story you're talking about uh is about stephen decatur who was an early Oh, during the time of the revolution is a one of the first u.s navy heroes uh, and he had an iron forge. This is during the War of 1812. Uh, he had an iron forge in the Pine Barrens, making guns for his ships uh, to go fight with the British. And supposedly, uh, while they're test firing their cannons, they the strange creature comes out, and Stephen Decatur fires a cannonball at this beast. Uh, the problem is, there's absolutely no evidence for it. Uh, see, one of the things that historians do is we don't take mythology at face value. We go, we want to know where does these, where do these stories come from? Where are the letters? Where's the correspondence? I mean, Stephen Decatur is an important person in American history, and there's lots and lots of material about his life, and there's absolutely nothing about him firing a cannon at, cannon at a monster in the woods. Uh, and so that is that is something that only gets kind of cobbled together because people say, well, Stephen Decatur had a was making cannons in the Pine Barrens, and that's what the Jersey Devil is, and so he must have been shooting at this thing. Uh, the the joke I always make is uh, on stories like this is it's all fun and games until the historians show up. <laughs> so that's interesting. So what you, what you would be looking for essentially to to, to prove incidents like these would be, like you said, correspondence and, and I guess multiple, multiple eyewitness reports instead of what sounds like it might be singular. Right. And there's, there's absolutely none of that. 
about the Jersey Devil. There's there's a thing called the Vance Larner Diary, which sometimes pops up if you if you go online and and, and you're looking at Jersey Devil stuff. You'll sometimes see reference to something called the Vance Larner Diary. And this is something supposedly written in the 1790s uh, by a farmer named Vance Larner who says, oh, I saw this crazy creature in the woods and it had wings and it had red glowing eyes. Uh, and people will often point to that and say, you see, even back to the 1790s, people were seeing this thing. The problem is the Vance Larner Diary is a hoax. Uh, it's, it's not genuine. It has no provenance. Uh, there, there's there's no evidence for it. Uh, and so that's, you know, it's one more thing that people think proves all this. Uh, but in reality, there's there's nothing to it. Yeah, it's very interesting. What do you think lets a myth like this stay around for as long as it does? Like, why is why is the Jersey Devil so persistent? Because it's and it's been around almost 100 years now, more, more than 100 years. Well, I'm a historian. I'm not a psychoanalyst. Right. Um, so I don't I don't have the skill set to ex- quite explain that. But, uh, you know, it's a fun story. It's an interesting story. Who wouldn't want to think there's some crazy, uh, you know, horse like animal with wings flying around the Pine Barrens? Um, you know, but it, it, people believe in UFOs and they, they believe in ghosts. And, you know, to, to explain that, that's the sixty four dollar question. You know, why do we why do human beings believe in this stuff that has no evidence for it. Yeah. It's very, it's very interesting. You know, we just had the director of the mutual UFO network on. And when you talk to these people, like people really, really believe these things. And it's interesting that I think once you're willing to believe in a conspiracy, there's a a switch that flips where you stop believing counter evidence. And I think that that, that allows it to stick around for as long as it does. And it makes these people very sure. Mm Mm-hmm. Right, but um, so I'm curious too. Have, so when you were doing your research on the Jersey Devil, did you ever uh, come across anybody or meet anybody that actually believes this thing exists? Because you know, for the life of me, I'm having a hard time finding anybody you know in modern age that actually thinks it's out there. Oh yeah, I I, I give talks on this all the time to at li- you know public libraries and civics groups and uh, and schools and things. And I have never given a talk or someone it, it always this is the way it always goes. Uh, I, I, I give the talk. And when the talk's over, there's a Q&A. And then when the Q&A is over, as everyone's leaving, usually a few people will come up to me and say, you know, oh, thanks a lot. I really enjoyed your talk. It's very interesting. There's always at least one person. Who will come up to me and say, "Oh, dude, I you know, yeah, great talk and all that, but but you know, it, a Jersey Devil's real because I saw it. I saw it in the woods, and you know, I, I, what am I gonna say? <laughs> uh, I had the I had like an eighty year old woman come up to me once after a talk, and and say, "Young man, uh, you know, I've seen the Jersey Devil, and you know, what am I gonna do? Intellectually bludgeon an eighty year old lady or something? Oh, well, that's great. You know, well done." Uh, but yeah, I, I encounter people all the time who say they've seen it. That's interesting. Like I just, you know, in the, in the, in the modern age, and you know, I've talked a lot about this when we talk to people who, um, search for Bigfoot and things like that. You think with HD cameras and motion sensors, if, if something was out there, I think we'd be probably getting some good evidence of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I sincerely believe that one of the things that, that sort of cinches it for me that, 
there is no Bigfoot, is that if there was, we wouldn't be having this conversation. We would know all about it. Uh, it would be known uh, and it would just be another very unusual animal, but just another animal. Um, and there would be people who study it and there would be skeletons in, in museums uh, and it really wouldn't be a, uh, a mystery. There'd be tons and tons of clear pictures and footage and, you know, and, and, and as there isn't any, people always throw up the Patterson film. But it's like, you know, the Patterson film, it's 8,000 years old. You, you don't have anything new since then? Yeah. You know, I think that's that's interesting. So I talked to um, Peter Byrne. Are you familiar with him? Yes. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, he ama- amazing guy to interview. Really, really nice. Um, but I think that a lot of... A lot of what he talks about hangs on eyewitness evidence. You know, there was seven loggers. They all saw the same thing and that's it. And he, But, you know, even he says, he says that they haven't had any credible footage uh, since the Patterson footage. And I think that's really interesting that as soon as we get to the age where footage gets good and gets high quality, that's when we stop seeing the evidence. And I think that that's kind of like that was the nail in the coffin for us as well. Yeah, there there would just be tons of pictures. Uh, like I said before, it, this it, it wouldn't even be a point of contention because we would have so much footage, so many pictures that there there would no longer be any doubt that this thing was real. And since we don't, that's one of the things for me that that seems to prove that there isn't uh, yeah. these creatures out there. Absolutely. Now, so in, in your time looking into you know monster hunters and all these other myths is there has there any been ever been anything that uh, strikes you as credible from what you've looked at or like even even like an inkling of close to credibility i get asked this that question all the time and i've looked at so many pictures uh, i've looked at tons of video of bigfoot and the loch ness monster and ghosts and ufo's and and the jersey devil and I, I like to think I'm a fairly honest guy. I've never seen a single bit of video or a single still photograph where I say, wow, that looks like the real thing. I've just never seen any. That's, that's I mean, so so far, that's where we're at, too. Well, you know, we're only, what is it, seven episodes deep, but still. <laughs> and I'd like to think that, you know, I'd love to think Bigfoot was real. I, I know tons and tons of biologists and zoologists and animal behaviorists, and every single one of them would love to think that Bigfoot was real. Uh, but they they have they have no choice but to say, "Where's the evidence?" And there simply isn't any. Yeah, I think you know, as a as a fiction writer, that like it, it's it's such a it's a wonderful idea and a very interesting concept. But so far, not a you've researched these these. Uh, people that maybe call themselves monster hunters, maybe don't just cryptozoologists in general. Uh, well, I, I often get yelled at for using <laughs> the term monster hunter. <laughs> I guess they're not trying to drag anything back. Right. So yeah, the uh, Russians especially get very upset with, got very upset with me using the term monster hunter. The the Russians is that, so were you talking about the, the Bigfoot over there in the, the mining town? Well, there's a, there's a considerable, at least there was, a considerable cryptozoological community in Russia uh, all throughout the, what we might call the golden age of cryptozoology. And some of those, some of those guys are still around. Uh, And some of those were were the ones who got really upset with, with my book. Um, But uh, yeah, they don't, they don't like being called monster hunters because they don't think these creatures are monsters. They think they're just, uh, you know, uh, primates 
that exist. I know. And I think, uh, you know, again, talking about Peter Byrne, like, he, you know, we talked about the Yeti as well. And when he talked about it, he said it was like a, a four foot tall uh, primate that maybe used to live in the Himalayas, but he thinks is extinct now. And I'm, so some of these I, I can think like, all right, maybe this used to exist, but it probably doesn't anymore if it did. Um, but even that's a little questionable. But of all the people that you've talked to and the interviews you've done, who who do you think has been the most interesting? What do you think is, I, I, I don't know, the most compelling story you've found in, in cryptozoology? You mean story of sightings? Yeah, or I mean, not, not even sightings, just like uh, like story of the, the myth. I know that uh, probably Jersey Devils won because you wrote an entire book on it. But uh, I'm curious what else you found out there that sort of captivated you. Well, I'm I'm not I'm not so much captivated by the things themselves. I'm captivated by the people who go looking for them. Um, I see the world of cryptozoology uh, and, and, and people who identify as cryptozoologists as kind of tragic figures. Um, you know, I started off the the searching for Sasquatch book with the line, "This is a story about dreams that don't come true." Uh, you have these people spending their entire lives um, chasing this thing. I, I, I think uh, other than other than Krantz, the guy who I thought was the most sort of compelling was Rennie DeHinden, uh, who I found I was able to track down some of his some of his correspondence and letters and things. Um, I know he had a, a huge amount of material, which the family, uh, his estate has. Uh, and they don't really let people look at, which is sort of a shame because I, I, I would have written a whole book about him. Uh, but this was a guy who became fascinated by this topic and abandoned his family. Uh, his, there's a point at which his wife says, look, you have to choose Bigfoot or your family. And he chose Bigfoot. And he, he walked out on his family and he spent the rest of his life. Uh, in the Canadian uh, Northwest uh, looking for this thing. And towards the end there, there, there's this one sort of telling bit that I found where he said, you know, I, I, I spent my whole life looking for this thing and I never found it. And, and I think that says something important about me and, and these monsters. Uh, and so I, I found him a, a sort of compelling, tragic character. Um, and, and there is material on him out there. I just, I just couldn't get to it. He's the one that part of Harry and the Hendersons is based on, right? Loosely, yeah. Yeah, very. I mean, very, very loosely. But coming from Washington, that's a pretty famous film around here. There's a couple of big Bigfoot statues out where they film pieces of it. But I think that that's part of what keeps the myth alive in this area. So you know, you've uh, you've tackled, you've got your monster hunting book, you've got. The, the book on the Jersey devil, do you have any interest in, in doing more work on cryptozoology or if you could go look into one group of people, who, who would it be? Well, right now my, my current project um, is I, I call it the Columbus project. Um, but it, it doesn't really have that much to do with Christopher Columbus. It's I'm, I'm looking at the various myths uh, and legends about who, really in quotation marks uh discovered america oh yeah that's right i'm reading about that on your website yeah and it's it, it's not monsters but it's still in that realm of people who kind of chase these dreams um there's this long history in 
North America especially, uh, about coming up with uh, trying to explain who who made it to America before Columbus. And, you know, there's there's St. Brendan and Prince Madoc and Leif Erikson and, and all these other stories. And what I find compelling about this whole thing is I'm not trying to this book is not about, you know, I finally proven who really discovered America. I don't really care who discovered America. What I'm interested in is how have these legends come up in American history um, that what they had to do with what was going on in in politics and culture at the time. Uh, for example, if you look at the 19th, the late 19th century interest in Leif Erikson, it, there's no evidence of Leif Erikson coming to America. We now know, for example, because of the excavations at Lancel Meadows in Newfoundland, that Norse explorers did get to North America around the year 1000 or so. But there's no evidence that they came any further south than that, and even less evidence of a guy named Leif Erikson being involved. But if you look at these stories... What is going on is this is a time at which the story of Leif Erikson is being used to bash immigrants, Catholic, Irish, Italian immigrants. Uh, and, and, see, and, and that's the thing I'm most interested in. How are these stories being used in, in, in extra historical fashion? That actually, in a way, sounds kind of similar to the, the Jersey Devil story, right? Like that's the same way that myth came about. Right. These, these are legends which have virtually no – historical or archaeological basis, yet they become very popular because they address these kind of cultural, political, religious concepts. It's, right. it's not really about who discovered America. It's about who owns America, who gets to call themselves an American. Right. I'm sure that's a pretty hot button topic, at, as always, really. It should be very interesting. Yeah. A couple of years ago, you know, tomorrow is uh, is is Columbus Day. And a couple of years ago, I did an op-ed on on um, Columbus Day, and I basically said, you know, there's a lot of these different legends, and yeah, Columbus did come to come to this hemisphere in 1492, uh, but there are these other stories here, and you know, why don't we have a Fusang Day, and and <laughs> why don't we have a Prince Madoc Day? Uh, and some guy wrote to me really angry. Uh, you know, you could you could almost hear the the intensity of his anger in his in his letter saying uh, that the only reason I did this was because I hate Italians. Uh, and so I wrote back to myself, how can I hate Italians? I love pasta. You know, and so this is this is the kind of thing I get all the time. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of used to it. People get very, very attached to. Uh, well, I guess to this case, the people we learn in like elementary school, right? Like we know the names of Columbus's ships from from a very early age. So I'm sure that people are like, well, I, I learned that in elementary school. So therefore, like that's that's why it's a day. And right. They don't need. Uh, and, you know, there's this whole thing now about. Oh, the Templars made it to Minnesota and Vikings made it to Wisconsin. There's absolutely no evidence for this. Uh, you know, oh, well, there, there are rune stones and these are all fake. Yeah, it sounds, uh, you know, again, it's a, it's a, you know, you're not you're not quite studying cryptozoology, but it is the same the same sort of evidence and the same kind of uh, mentality almost between the right, two. Yeah. One, one of the one of the sort of underlying ideas to all my work has always been I'm, I'm fascinated by the relationship between professionals and amateurs, uh, yeah. whether it's studying science or monsters or uh, American national origin stories. Uh, how how do the people who are trained to do a particular job uh, interact with the people who want to do that job but don't have the training. 
Yeah, that's actually, you know, that's something I wanted to ask you about, too, is was just what do you think about the effect of these the pseudosciences or fringe sciences on on mainstream science and like just, you know, their place in between them? Well, the pseudoscience is just a terrible thing. Uh, it, I get I wind up interacting with anti-vaxxers a lot. And uh, the the mainstream medical scientific community knows that vaccinations are perfectly acceptable. They're, vaccinations are one of the greatest medical discoveries in human history. Uh, hundreds of millions of people's lives have been saved by vaccinations. And, you know, then you get these people who read a couple of Wikipedia pages and, you know, oh, this guy, their kid got uh, became autistic. Uh, and they got vaccinated. So therefore, it's the same thing. And it's not. Um, the evidence is pretty clear that vaccinations have nothing to do with autism. And yet there's this very vocal community, which has reached all the way into the, the, the White House, into the Oval Office. Uh, you know, and this anti-vaccination thing is just one example of the harm that pseudoscience can do. Because people can get desperate and they start believing in things that, that aren't there. Uh, and it, it just has bad consequences for all of our society. Yeah. Do you think that applies to cryptozoology as well? Because, you know, again, like, I, I obviously, yes, like vaccinations are amazing. And, you know, anti-vaxxers are one of the most harmful groups we have right now. But I'm, I'm curious if you think there's a connection uh, between that and, you know, people who start to like, almost where, where is the line between believing in something like Bigfoot and believing something like that? Yeah, well, that, that's a good question. I don't know where that line is. Um, we might say, um, I would, I would hesitatingly say that cryptozoology is probably at the lesser end of that spectrum. Uh, you know, if you're a person who thinks, Bigfoot is real or you've seen something strange in the woods, which suggests to you Bigfoot's real. And that doesn't automatically mean you're you, you believe in the deep state, you know, <laughs> maybe. Uh, but uh, it, I think of all those things, uh, cryptozoology is probably at the more benign end of the scale. Uh, I would be much more worried about someone who who thinks vaccinations cause autism or that there are, you know, secret cabals within the government running pedophile rings than than somebody who thinks Bigfoot or the Jersey Devil or the Loch Ness Monster is real. Yeah, so I think that you know the the real danger, as far as from what I've seen too, comes from that distrust. I think I think distrust in the government can actually be a pretty good indicator of where that line is. So as soon as you start to think that the reason we're not finding it, you know, evidence of these cryptids is because of a government cover up, I think that opens you up to some of the more dangerous notions. Yeah. And, you know, there were there were ideas about that all the way back uh, that the government was somehow covering up uh, There's great stuff written by Ivan Sanderson, who's one of the people who kind of gets the, the credit for having coined the term cryptozoology. Uh, he was going on. There, there are places where he goes on about how uh, he, he he saw Bigfoot and the Yeti in terms of the Cold War, that that somehow if the the U.S. government doesn't accept that Bigfoot is real, that means the Russians are going to get the, you know, a leg up on us and be able to conquer Western Europe. And, you know, so there, there, there are places at which this thing can lead to this darker stuff. 
Yeah. And you know, it's funny when I was researching the Yeti, uh, one of the most interesting things I found uh, was just the political interest from the Nazis. Uh, did you know that the Nazis uh, apparently were funding research into the Yeti because they believed it was the progenitor of the Aryan race? Like, well, there's a yeah, there's a whole thing about the Nazis uh, and Aryan theory and the idea that Central Asia uh, was the sort of cradle of not the entire human race, but the Caucasian race, uh, and they sent. They sent expeditions there and and tried to find out what was going on and um, they they had a they had a kind of interest in 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 the weirdness that they thought was coming out of Central Asia. There's a lot of there's a lot of like fascinating occult stuff from that era that's just wild when you read into it. Yeah, well, uh, all those guys, you know, like Madame Blavatsky and uh, and uh, and the, the kind of uh, 19th century late 19th century occult revival. Uh, which some scholars see as a kind of breeding ground for the eventual Nazi movement, uh, although not every occultist was was a Nazi. Um, that kind of led to this notion that the human race um, first germinates, if you will, in Central Asia. Uh, and that kind of dovetails into ideas of anti-Semitism and race hatred and separation of the of the races, uh, and, and it, it it kind of swirls around in this kind of soup. Uh, and again, I'm not saying that every person who in the 19th century believed in in spirits or the occult uh, automatically became a Nazi, but a number of the Nazis did come out of that world. Right. Yeah. I mean, of course, like. <laughs> Be pretty. I mean, there'd, there'd be a lot more. There would have been a lot more Nazis uh, if, if everybody who believed in something paranormal ended up in that route. But yeah, it's uh, it's fascinating how those those worlds can intersect. So I think that you know that about covers most of my questions. Uh, okay. But one 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 final you know two final ones really. Uh, but the the first one that I'm sure that we're gonna have uh, a ton of furious listeners. Uh, when we put this out, because this is the first time I've, I've actually had the opportunity to do a, an interview with somebody who's not, uh, you know, very firmly on the side of cryptozoology, which is exciting for me, maybe not as exciting for them. What would you say to our to our furious listeners uh, who, who are going to be writing hate mail uh, on the subject? Well, I've uh, I, I'll, I'll I'll tell you what I've always told people. I'm I'm not anti cryptozoology. Uh, the history of monster hunting broadly defined goes all the way back to the classical world. Uh, some of the world's most important philosophers and writers considered the existence of monsters and thought it was important to uh, examine them. Uh, Charles Darwin, in his work on when, when he's creating the, the idea of natural selection, looks at monsters as a way of seeing could they tell us anything about generation and heredity? Uh, and so I, I'm, I'm not against people going out and trying to find monsters. If you want to go out and find monsters, God bless you. You know, get on out there. Um, but my recommendation would be learn some scholarship. Take some science classes. Take a biology class. Take some zoology classes. Take some history classes. Uh, learn the material that you're looking at try to become a scholar when doing this and you'll have a much better time of it and we might actually learn something one of the interesting things about the whole run of the history of science 
is that there are just these legions of stories about someone who went out looking for one thing, didn't find it, but found something else important. Uh, you know, a lot of these guys like Pliny and Lucretius and Aristotle, uh, who began looking at whether monsters were real or not, basically invent biology as a result. Uh, and so we can, the, the, uh, under the right conditions, cryptozoology or interest in encrypteds and and unusual animals can lead to good things so that's 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 what my advice would be uh go out there and 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 learn something uh before you go running around in the woods and you might actually be able to tell what it is you're finding yeah and i think you know interestingly enough that's very similar to the advice that's given by some of the the higher profile cryptozoologists we've talked to as well it's just like make sure you know how to record evidence before you go hunting for anything. Because, you know, God forbid you actually did find a cryptid. You want to be able to to have that silver bullet evidence to bring back rather than just like, I saw it. Well, one of the things that, one of the things that helped me in my work was that I'm a trained historian, uh, academically trained how you study the past, how you go looking for archives and how you use archives and how you do all this stuff. Uh, but the 99% of cryptozoologists have no such training uh, and so don't even know where to look for these things, which is why when I did the book, the biography of, of Grover Krantz, the stuff I was looking at, no one had ever looked at before. When Frank Esposito and I started doing the the um, Jersey Devil book, we found all this material out there that had direct impact on the story that no one had ever looked at. Because they weren't trained to do it. They didn't know to do it. I mean, in that sense, I think there's a lot more interesting work to be done. So, yeah, I mean, I hope I hope that you keep writing on the subject eventually. Like, uh, I'd be interested. I actually picked up a copy of one of your books. So uh, I'll be excited to check that out. For everybody listening, uh, where can they find your work? Where can, where can they uh, follow your progress? Well, if you just Google my name, you'll find my Kane University webpage. Uh, and on there, there's tons of articles I've written that you can download for free. And 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 all my books and things are there. Uh, and you can get an idea of what I'm doing. And, uh, you know, if you want, if you got questions, go ahead and contact me. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. And, yeah, I, I really appreciate it. This has been a fascinating conversation. And I hope our, I hope our listeners think so as well. Great. I hope so, too. It's been fun. Well, that about wraps us up for this episode. We'll be back in two weeks. We're going to be doing another History of the Mystery episode, this time covering the Jersey Devil. Uh, It's going to be all three of us, me, John, and Tyler. So, you know, check back in two weeks for that. It's going to be really exciting. And uh, lastly, Rob Lowe. Bet you thought you were getting off the hook here, but no, I put it in the outro this time because I know you listen to the whole podcast. So just, you know, if you you like it so much, just come on the show, Uh, you know, because I've always said, and I maintain this, the day that we get Rob Lowe on this podcast is the, it's the day I shut it down. So, uh, you know, if, if maybe if you don't like this podcast, uh, harass Rob Lowe, and uh, you'll, you'll get the podcast ended uh, sooner rather than later. Anyways, thanks to everybody for listening. Uh, without you guys, you know, I, I mean, we'd probably still be doing this, but it, it feels nice to, to get a couple hundred views per episode. So, you know, give yourself a pat on the back. Also, you know, hey, I'm still sitting on a bunch of cryptids decrypted stickers here. So if you want some, you can go ahead and just at me uh, at Real Mac Ashton on Twitter, and uh, you know, I'll get some of those sent out. Anyways, see you in two weeks. Thanks again. <laughs> <laughs>